Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Today is, is Palm Sunday, and um, today kicks off the last week of Jesus's life on earth. We call it the Passion Week. We're going to look in the Gospel of John this morning, John chapter 12. Uh, John is one of four gospel writers that covers um, this last week of Jesus's life. And here's what's amazing to me. We're going to be in John chapter 12 today. John chapter 1 through 11 details the first three and a half years of Jesus's earthly ministry. Three and a half years in 11 chapters. Chapter 12 through 21, which is 10 chapters, one week. So almost half of the entire book of John is dedicated to one week. If you look at the other gospels, um, Matthew's gospel, almost 40% of the gospel uh, is dedicated to this week. In Mark, over 60% of Mark's gospel is dedicated or devoted to the Passion Week. And Luke's gospel covers almost 30% of this one week. So all in all, there's four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that cover three and a half years of the life of Jesus. And collectively, they're going to dedicate or devote 40% of the entire gospel text to one week. I'm telling you that because I want you to see the gravity and the weight of the importance. If 40% of the gospel covers one week of Jesus's life, don't you think it's important? Okay, so we're going to unpack one day today, and if you have your Bibles, look on the screen. Go with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. This is the triumphal entry, and this is what it says. It says, the next day the great crowd had come for the festival. They heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of all of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed the sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. I want to preach to you this morning on the subject of when Jesus enters, when Jesus enters. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the reading of your word. God, we know that when Jesus enters, everything changes. And God, that's what we ask for today. Enter this room, enter our hearts, enter our lives, enter this community. God, we need you to change us. Change us from the inside out. We ask all this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. When Jesus enters, when Jesus enters. In our text, Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem for the very last time in his earthly life. He's going to enter The very nature of Jesus presents itself in such a way that when Jesus enters any place at any time, a decision must be made. 
It, it doesn't matter if Jesus enters a city, if he enters a village, if he enters a home, if he enters a heart. When, when Jesus enters, we are forced to make a decision. The presence of Jesus always produces a response. A decision has to be made. Everybody say decision. I've learned that there's a, a popular game out about decisions that kids play. I think there's a board game version of this. There's some online games. Uh, people use these on their Instagram and uh, Facebook posts. Uh, it, it's a travel game. It's a game of decisions. And the game is called This or That. This or That. And basically, if you know the game, you're given, you're given two choices. And you, you either have to pick this or that. There's no third choice. It's either this or that. So I, I thought it'd be fun on this Palm Sunday to play my version of this or that. Are y'all ready? Put on your participants. Here we go, this or that, number one. Dogs or cats? All the dog people, let me see, hey. Yeah, bark, bark. All the cat people, you make the cat sound, go ahead. Y'all know there's a movie, All Dogs Go to Heaven. There's no, there's no movies about cats. If you've heard me preach for a while, you know that I am a dog lover. However, my wife wanted me to tell you that I have warmed up to cats a little bit. We have a cat. I wasn't thrilled about getting the cat, but for some reason the cat likes me. And she'll just come up to me and purr. And so, uh, dog, dog people, raise your hand, dog people, dog, okay, cat people. Dogs win. All right, here we go. All right, number two, number two, call or text? All the call people, raise your hand. That's the old people. <laughs> text people. Okay? I do both. I'll, I'll be real honest. I, I prefer a phone call because I don't know the tone of your voice when you text me. And when I get all caps exclamation point, I think you're screaming at me. So uh, call me. All right, here's where I'm going to start preaching. Pancakes or waffles? Pancake people. Waffle people. You don't care, just put syrup on it, people. There we go. All right, now I'm going to be able to tell a lot about you from this next question. Shower or bath? Shower people. Yeah, these are the people that really care about getting clean. Bath people, you don't care about cleanliness. You just want to relax. Them kids have been driving you crazy. Give me a bubble bath and a book. All right. Bath people, raise your hand. Bath people, shower people. Okay. This is where I'm going to split hairs in the church. Okay. When it comes to eating gumbo, do you put your potato salad on the outside or on the inside. Outside people, you, 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 like, you like to taste that mayo. Outside, okay. Inside people, how many do it like me? You got some on the outside and the inside. Okay, all right. It is Easter week. I don't know if you do Easter baskets, but the big debate is do you go with chocolate or jelly beans? Chocolate people, jelly bean people. I dip my jelly beans in chocolate. Okay. <laughs> this or that. It forces you to make a decision. 
in just the moment, I'm going to give you two more options, two more choices that I think are vital that we correct, correctly answer this or that. Let's go back to the narrative. In our text, Jesus is going to ride a donkey and enter into Jerusalem for what is known as the triumphal entry. We, we traditionally call this Palm Sunday. How many of you have grown up with Palm Sunday and you've heard about Palm Sunday and you know what Palm Sunday is? Maybe you don't know what Palm Sunday is. Maybe you, know, you just remember going to church as a kid and they gave you a palm. Uh, I, I want to explain the significance of this entrance. Now, in, in today's society, we follow a Gregorian calendar. We have 12 months. There's 365 and a quarter days in a year. We know the months. We learn the months. January, February, we know that. We learn them at a very early age. In this Hebrew tradition, they didn't have a Gregorian calendar. The Hebrew calendar, which they still follow to this day, followed a lunar cycle. They didn't have months. Their months started with the new moon and ended with the full moon. And they had 12 of these months. Their months were exactly 30 days and they only had 360 days in a year. So when this event happens, when this day happens where Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem for the triumphal entry, he just didn't periodically or he just didn't randomly pick this day. There was some significance behind this day. In this Jewish calendar, this would have been the 10th day of Nisan. I said it, Nisan. It's not a car. It's an actual month. They still celebrate this month. Right now in Hebrew culture, it is the month of Nisan. Okay, it's, it, it's the first month in their year, and it's somewhere between the end of March to the beginning of April. It's where we are right now. So in Jewish tradition, on the day that Jesus would enter into Jerusalem, it's the 10th day of the first month of the year. Okay, why is this important? Because on the 10th day of the first month of the year, Jewish practice, Jewish fam, uh, practicing Jewish families would select a spotless lamb. They would keep that lamb for four days, and it was customary that four days later they would sacrifice that lamb to commemorate the Passover. Now, if you remember what the Passover was, in Exodus, God sent the ten plagues. The last plague, God sent the death angel. The promise was that whoever sacrificed a, a lamb on this Passover, that, that God and took the blood of the lamb and put it over their doorpost, that the death angel would pass over their house and death wouldn't come to their house. So in a very real way, the blood of the lamb saved the Israelites from death. So 1,400 years later, the Jews are celebrating, they're remembering God's salvation through a lamb, and they're remembering this event. They would remember this event every year. It was a festival. It was, it was a feast. So I want you to see what's interesting. Here's what's so interesting to me. On the day that they would select a lamb to be sacrificed, simultaneously, the lamb of God, Jesus, was riding into Jerusalem. He would be riding into Jerusalem for one reason and one purpose only, that four days later he would become the Passover lamb himself to be sacrificed for the sins of all mankind. So God had been preparing the nation of Israel for 1,400 years for the Messiah, for the triumphal entry, and now they would finally see that he was here. Now, 2,000 years ago from now was when this happened. It was 1,400 years from the original Passover. So I want you to see this. Some are going to see it. Some don't. Some believed. Some doubted. 
Some said, Hosanna, 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 which means save us now. Later on, others said crucify. So I want you to see these contrasts, these this or that. There was belief. There was doubt. There was Hosanna. There was crucify. It was this or that. Remember what I told you. When Jesus enters, a decision has to be made. This morning, I want to look at two decisions that have to be made by us. Here we go. Write this down. First decision, here it is. Will you pick opinions or truth? Opinions or truth? What will you choose? When Jesus enters, my opinions must bow to his truth. I want you to go back to the text. There's four groups of people that are here on this day as Jesus makes the triumphal entry. I'm going to read you the verses of scripture. Let's see if we can pick out who they are and identify them. Let's go back to John chapter 12. It says this, the very next day, a great crowd had come to him for the group. Number one is the festival crowd. The only reason why they are in Jerusalem is because they are there to celebrate a religious festival. Next group, verse 16 says, at first his Group number two is the disciples. These are the people that have been with him the last three and a half years. That's group number two. Group number three, verse 17, tells us who they are. It says, now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb. This is John chapter 12. If you go back to John chapter 11, this is when Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So I want you to see there's a group that's there specifically for the Passover. They're there for the religious festival. That's group one. The second group is the group that's specifically there to follow Jesus. That's his disciples. There are also eyewitnesses there who are not there to celebrate the Passover that are there because they saw Jesus do a miracle. They raised them from the dead and said, we got to follow this guy. That's group three. And then the fourth group, if you keep reading, go with me now to, to verse 19. It says, now the Pharisees, these are the religious people. So four groups, the crowd, the disciples, the eyewitnesses, and the religious. I want you to see this because there's four distinct groups and there's four distinct opinions of who Jesus was. Everybody say opinion. We live in a day and age where everybody has an opinion. Everybody in this room has opinions and you got opinions on everything. We have opinions on politics. We have opinions on church. We have opinions on social issues. We have opinions on morality. We have opinions on love and acceptance. We have opinions on sexuality. And all you have to do is turn on the news or get on social media and you will realize there is a blizzard of opinions that has overwhelmed the land. Now we have a platform to broadcast our opinions. 15 years ago, you just had an opinion. Now we have a place called social media where we've turned our keyboards and screens into bully pulpits, not to spread the truth, but to tell the world what we think and how we feel and who we agree with and who we disagree with and who we love and who we hate and who's right and who's wrong and what my opinion is. And if your opinion doesn't match my opinion, I'll just cancel you. Everybody say opinion. When it comes to all these different opinions, I don't even think it comes down 
to the opinion of what we're arguing over. I don't even really think that the issue is the issue because we have an opinion on the issue. It doesn't really boil down to what you think about the issue. When you express yourself on social media, it really boils down to what do I think about Jesus? Are you tracking with me? In almost every case, it's not what do I think about this hot topic that comes out of me. It's really what do I think about Jesus? I could say it this way. In many cases, I can tell what you think about Jesus just by you telling me what you think about the hot topic. And that's problematic, especially in the church, because we haven't resolved on the true identity of Jesus. And even in the church, there's a lot of opinions of who Jesus is. In our text, there's going to be some different thoughts about Jesus. There's, there's the disciples. They've been with him for three and a half years. There, there's, the, there's the group that was, saw the, the, the resurrection of Lazarus. They've only been with him for a day. There, there's a religious group who's trying to cancel Jesus. They're threatened by him. They all have opinions of Jesus. By the way, this is nothing new. People have always had an opinion of Jesus. If you go back, we're in John 12. If you just go back to John chapter 9, uh, there was many opinions. Uh, some said, this is certainly not the, the son of God. This man cannot be from God because he's healing uh, on the Sabbath. So some thought he wasn't from God. Others thought he was just a prophet. Some thought in John chapter 10 that he was demon possessed. Do, do, do you remember uh, when, when Jesus takes the disciples to Caesarea Philippi and they go to this place, which was this, this, uh, uh, this mountain where they would worship the pan God. And they, they actually believed that this was the gate of hell. And Jesus tells his disciples, I will build my church on this rock and the gates of hell shall not prevail. But do you remember what he said before he even said that? He says, who do you say, do I, say that I am? And do you remember what the disciples said? The disciples started saying, well, some say... You're John the Baptist. Some, some say you're, you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're a prophet. And here's what Jesus says. No, no, no. Don't tell me what everybody else's opinion is. What's your opinion? Who am I to you? Who, who, who do you say that I am? And this is why it's so important. Because if we don't understand personally the truth of who Jesus is, all of our other opinions will be wrong. I want you to see this. There's this myriad of opinions going on of who Jesus is in this day. And Jesus comes marching into Jerusalem. There's, there's people who think he's just a miracle worker. There's people who think he's just a prophet. There's people that think all these different things. And look what John does in this myriad of, of opinions. In verse 14, it says, Jesus found a young donkey. And here's what John says. As it is Written. He's quoting Zechariah chapter 9. Here's what it says. Don't be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming. Seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples didn't even understand. But I want you to see there's twice that John says it was written. Why is this important? When everybody had an opinion of Jesus, John quotes scripture. Why? Because what scripture says he is is more reliable than what everyone else thinks. So, if my opinion of Jesus doesn't line up with the truth of God's word, then my opinions on other subjects may be wrong too. And everybody's got an opinion like, well, I, I, I just think Jesus is accepting and loving so you can deal with anything that you want and he's going to love you. P people say that. I, I've heard people say that, well, we're all God's children. By the way, that is not true. Do you know that? 
We're all God's creation. We don't become God's child. It says some were given the right to become the children of God when they repented of their sins. Just what John 1 says. So we're not all God's children. But, it, but if we don't get that view right, it taints everything. And so, so our opinions get off, and then, then our opinions are expressed in every other facet of life. And so here's what I've come to realize, that it's really not what is your opinion on sexuality. It's how do you see Jesus? Because if you don't see Jesus right, you're not going to see sexuality right. If you don't see Jesus right, you're not going to see morality right. If you don't see Jesus right, you're not going to see justice right. If you don't see Jesus right, you're not going to see forgiveness right. If you don't see Jesus right, you're not going to see uh, people right. And we're living in a day and age where I just think people haven't got Jesus right. And here's what happens. Here's what happens. When a society doesn't get Jesus right, opinions rise and truth falls. Isn't that what's happening in culture today? That opinions are rising? Y'all, there's 17 million podcasts today. Everybody has an opinion about something. Opinions rise, and when opinions rise, truth false. Look at what the prophet Isaiah says. He says, justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off for truth is fallen in the street. Listen, the truth is fallen. There is no more truth in America. There is no more truth in this world. According to most people, just express your opinion. Do you, be you, do what feels right. And that's the truth. No, it's not. The truth is fallen. How do I know that? Because what once used to be called sin is not sin anymore. What once used to be called holy is not holy anymore. What once used to be called righteous is not righteous anymore. We are watching truth fall in the street. We are watching truth now bow to opinion. Look what, look what Paul says about this. Watch how dangerous this is. Second Timothy, this was Paul writing to a young Timothy. He says, for the time will not will come. I think that time is right here. Watch this. When people will not put up with Sound doctrine. Do you know what sound doctrine is? Truth. There is a time that is coming, I think it's here now, where people will not put up with truth. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear, which tells me most people don't want to hear truth. They want to find somebody who has the same opinion of them to validate their insecurity. Verse 4. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths or opinions. Paul is telling us in a second letter to Timothy that a time is coming that I believe is here that people are going to trade the truths of God for the opinions of man. And it's what we all want. We, we want people to think like us. People ask me all the time, hey, man, you're a pastor. What do you think? What do you think about this? What do you think about that? What's your opinion on that? What's your opinion on this? What's your, I want to know your opinion. I want to know your opinion. I want to know your opinion. Listen to me. Unless my opinion is written in the Bible, why do you care? That's all it is, is an opinion. Why do I need an opinion when God's already spoke about it? Every matter that we face in life is in the Bible. It's called his word. The truth of God will always trump the opinions of man. Are you tracking with me? Okay. So, so John is speaking to him and he says, it is written. And then they're, they're running out to see him. And I want you to get this picture. And, and then here comes Jesus while they're running to him. And Jesus 
is riding on a donkey. Why a donkey? I mean, why not a horse? Why, why, why not a camel? Why a donkey? I, I, I got a little bored this week while I was studying, so I, I researched some fun facts about donkeys. Because um, I'm a little ADD and I chase rabbits sometimes. And in this case, I chase donkeys. So here we go. Uh, I just going to give a couple of fun facts about donkeys. Uh, donkeys have a lifespan up to 50 years. Did you know that? Uh, contrary to popular belief, uh, donkeys are extremely intelligent. In fact, donkeys have one of the best memories on the planet. They can recognize a place they've been to or another donkey that they haven't seen in 25 years. That's crazy. And people are like, yeah, but they're dumb. No, they're not dumb. They're stubborn. There's a difference. And, and donkeys have this reputation of stubbornness, not because they're not intelligent. They have this reputation for stubbornness because donkeys have this great sense of self-preservation. So it, it is difficult to force or frighten a donkey to do something when they feel like what you're getting them to do is going to bring harm to them. So they just won't move. Okay. Donkeys got big ears. Y'all know that? Watch this. With those ears in a desert environment, a donkey is able to hear the call of another donkey 60 miles away. And then fi final fun fact, more people are killed each year by donkeys than plane crashes. I don't know. I Googled it. Must be true. <laughs> so why a donkey? Was, was Jesus enamored with donkey facts? Did he just like donkey rides? Why, 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 why a donkey? Here, here's why. Because the donkey proved his identity. John 12, 15, John is quoting Zechariah. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See your king is coming, and he's seated on a donkey. Every Hebrew boy would know this scripture. Every Jew would know the scripture, that your king is coming, and he will ride a donkey. Jesus is presenting himself as the king for the first time. Listen to me. The donkey offers the reliability of scripture. By riding the donkey, Jesus proved that the scripture was right. 500 years before Jesus rode the donkey, Zechariah prophesied about it. Why? Because scripture is always reliable. Scripture is always true. Scripture can always be trusted. Scripture can always be tested. And I don't care what opinion CNN has. I don't care what opinions Fox News has. It doesn't matter what opinions the Republicans or Democrats express. I don't care who holds it true or who doesn't like it. If it doesn't line up with the word of God, then it's not true. I was, I was preaching at another campus in our OSC world, not too long ago, and this guy came up in the end, he says, you know, you're, you're, you're really tough when you preach. I was like, thank you. He goes, it wasn't really a compliment. Like, you know, uh, times are changing, pastor. You, you should be a little bit more progressive in your thinking. Don't be so old, so old fashioned. And then he says this, you should really look at Christianity in a new way. A new way? A new way? Listen, if it's new, it ain't true, boo.
And if it's true, it ain't new. Because everything changes, but the word of God stays the same. It's yesterday, today, and forever. The opinions will change, mindsets will change, thinking will change, but the one thing that remains the same, the one thing that remains true from generation to generation is the word of God. My question today is, does God's word have the final authority in every area of your life? Come on, tell your neighbor, it don't change, boo. All right. Second decision, the second this or that, what are we going to pick? When Jesus enters, there must be a decision. Will the decision be religion or Jesus? Religion or Jesus? Those two words are synonymous with a lot of people. They, they, they think it's the same thing. They'll ask you what religion are you? What, what, what do you believe? Religion or Jesus? When Jesus makes his triumphal entry, this is the height of religiosity. Everyone in Jerusalem was religious. Look at John chapter 12, verse 12 through 13. It says, the next day the great crowd had come from the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. What crowd? Well, the, the crowd that was there at the festival. This was a religious festival, so it's a crowd of religious people. First century Hebrews, if you were a practicing Jew, were mandated to attend three pilgrimage festivals or feasts Every year, they had to go to the Passover feast, they had to go to the Pentecost feast, and they had to go to the Feast of Tabernacles. It was, it was required, it was a mandate, it was a tradition that it helped them to think that they were getting close to God. So if I go to the festival, this is what they're thinking, I would have done my part, and because I've done my part, God will be pleased. This crowd is at one of these festivals, one of these feasts, and that festival is called Passover. It's the week that we're in now. Now, they had been celebrating this festival, this feast, for 1,400 years. I just want you to understand how they did this. Every year, it was the same exact thing. Every year, it was the same exact rituals. When they would actually pilgrimage to Jerusalem, they would take every year the same exact route. Every year, they made the same exact meals. Every year, they said the same exact prayers. Every year, it was the same exact routine. And that's what religion is. It's a formula or a routine. It's a way to get to God. That's what the religious crowd is doing. They're going through the motions. They're, they're saying some prescribed prayers, doing the same old thing. They're at this religious festival that some of those have been there for 20, 30 years doing the same exact thing, saying the same exact prayers. And in the middle of these prayers, in the middle of these meals, all of a sudden, here comes Jesus on a donkey. And it says that they leave their religious activities and they run to Jesus. And verse 13 says when they run to Jesus, it says they took palm branches and went to meet him. They left the religious ceremonial side of what they're doing to go and meet Jesus. And they go and, and this translation says they had palm branches. They took palm branches. Why would, why would they take palm branches? In Leviticus 23, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, he would take two things. He would take two branches with him. Uh, he, first, it says he would take a, a willow 
branch. Uh, then he would take a, a palm branch. Here in South Louisiana, have you, have you seen willow trees? We call them weeping willows. And have you ever seen a weeping willow? It just... The weeping willow was a sign of weeping. It was a sign of lamenting. So this, this priest would go in with one hand be lamenting, and the other hand he would carry a palm branch. Have you ever seen palm trees? When I think of palm trees, you know what I think about? I think of Florida. I think of the beach. I think of life. I think of water. Why? Because a palm branch is a sign of life. When Jesus comes into town, they don't take the weeping branch. They take the praising branch. Why? Because it is a sign of life. Not only did they go in there waving palms, but in the other gospel recordings, it says that they took their outer garments off their cloaks and they began to lay their cloaks on the ground for Jesus to pass over. Why would they do this? Why would they take off their coats and lay them on the ground? This was symbolizing royal treatment. We, we see it with King Jehu in the Old Testament. We see it with other coronations of kings. All those who were subject to the king would lay their outer garments down on the road for the king to travel. So as the, this act of waving palms with one hand and throwing their coats down with the other hand led to two things. It represents two things, life and royalty. Why is that important? Because we find true life not by serving a religion, but by crowning a king. And that king is Jesus. There is a big, big difference between Jesus and religion. People ask me all the time, are you religious? Like, nope, I am not. But you're a pastor. That's all right. I'm not religious. In fact, Jesus and the religious folks, y'all, they, they, didn't, they didn't jive real well. We, we see Jesus going out of his way to show compassion to the sinners. He would step over some people to get to a sinner to show compassion to. You know who Jesus scorned and scoffed and rebuked? It was the religious people. Jesus and the religious folks were always getting into it. Look at this one time in Matthew 15. It says this. It says, then some Pharisees and teachers of the law, those are the religious leaders, came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. They, they don't do what our religion tells them to do. They don't do what our traditions tell them to do. And then Jesus responds to him. He goes, tradition? Tradition? You're worried about Tradition? Look what he says. You do all those things, you wash your hands, but this is what he says. But you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You do all the religious ceremonial things, but you nullify the word of God. You hypocrites. Isaiah which was right when he prophesied about you. He says, these people honor me with their lips. They looked apart. Bless God. Hallelujah. Amen, Pastor. He goes, you say all the right things, but look what he says. But your hearts, your hearts aren't right. He says, they worship me in vain for their teachings are merely human rules. And that's exactly what religion is. It's human rules and traditions that man believes will get him closer to God. But on the contrary, it actually pushes them farther and farther away. He says, your hearts are far from me. And all these times during scripture, we see Jesus calling out the religious people. He would say things like, woe, you hypocrites. Woe unto you, you hypocrites. He, he would repeatedly call them fools. In Matthew 23, he calls them blind guides. That, yes, you're leading people. You're just leading them in the wrong direction. 
He called them snakes. He says, in one, in one verse, he says, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You know what a whitewashed tomb is? You ever been to a graveyard or a cemetery? And they got a new headstone, it's all polished. He says, that's what the outside looks like, all polished. But you know what's underneath that polished? Death. That's what's on the inside of you. And here's the dangerous part as Jesus continues to rebuke religious people. And here's my concern for us today. Religious people don't even know they're religious. Let me just give you a couple contradictions between Jesus and religion. Then you can go home and eat lunch. Number one, religion always emphasizes the outside. Jesus always emphasizes the inside. Religion is always about looking the part, getting cleaned up. But Jesus is always about changing your heart. Religious is always starting with the behavior. Jesus says, I'll get to the behavior, but the behavior won't change if your heart won't change. Let me start with your heart because you're saying all the right things with your lips, but your heart's not right. That's why he would say things like, let me talk about the evil in your heart from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus is always concerned, more concerned about what's in here. He's always concerned about the inside. And here's the hard thing for us as humans. We can't see what's in each other's heart. Eventually, though, it's going to come out. Because what's in here will eventually. That's why you'll see somebody on Facebook and you can't believe they responded the way they did. You say, I thought that I see her raising her hand. Number two. Religion's always about what you can't do. Jesus is always about what you can do. Religion's always about prohibition. Thou shalt not. You can't. Here's the list. Here's the rules. Here's the do nots. Y'all, this group that was coming to watch Jesus make his triumphal entry, you know how many Levitical laws they had to keep? 613. Can you imagine the rule book, the owner's manual, and then all of a sudden you get in trouble because you didn't know rule. I'm sorry, man, I didn't read page 82. With Jesus, it's not about what you can't do. It's come as you are and watch what I can do through you. And what baffles me is I know people who their whole spiritual experience and makeup and the proof that they are Christians is not defined by the love that they have for fellow brothers. You know, the Bible says they will know you by your fruit. They will know you by your love for one another. I, I know people who base their entire spirituality not on by what they do do. But it's based on what they don't do. Why well, I'm a Christian because I don't do that. How sad is that? How, how boring is that? I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls to do. <laughs> well, whoop de do. What do you do?
if you show me all the things you don't do, and there's nothing in your life that suggests there is growth and action and change, then you've missed it. Okay, that, that was all my teaching. Can I start preaching now? I, have, I barely even broke a sweat. All right, here we go. Number three, religion puts up barriers. Jesus pulls them down. There's a lot of opinions right now, right? And, and no matter what side of the fence you're on or what your political affiliation is, and I'm not getting into all that today. One of the hot topics at the forefront of our country is, is equality, equal rights. And I believe that everyone should have the same access and same opportunity as everybody else. I think that's a God-given right. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. Okay? But do you know who the worst group in the world at opposing equality is? It's not a skin pigmentation group. It's religious people. If you and I were to go to that spot where Jesus rides his donkey into Jerusalem, they would have gone to the Temple Mount. They would have eventually gone to the Holy of Holies. That's where they, that's where they worship. They've gone to the temple. Do you know that as Gentiles or non-Jews, you and I couldn't get in? Do you know that? They had a place for people like me and you. It's called the outer courts. It's like, hey, we're going to have service in here. Y'all hang out in the foyer. We'll put it on a TV for you. They didn't have TV. It's like all the people with spiritual cooties, y'all aren't good enough to come in here. Now, now if, if, if you were a Jew and a woman, you could have got a little bit further in. Then if you were a Jew and a male, you would have got a lot further in. Then if you were a Jewish high priest, you could have gone straight into the Holy of Holies. So I want you to see this. In the Old Testament, in first century Jerusalem, there were courts and walls that kept people out. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? Some people are allowed to come to my church and some aren't. We would never do that, right? Wrong. Because in some religious circles today, if you don't look the part and you don't smell the part and you don't sound the part, then you're really not welcome here. I call it Halloween church. Everybody's wearing a mask, pretending that they, they, ha they don't have pain, they don't have the past, they don't have shame, and they're pretending that, that, they, that they're perfect and nobody else, and they're shunning the ones that don't. Look at her coming in here like that. Don't they know this is the house of the Lord? I can't believe they're here. You know what they did last week? You know where they were last night? I saw them on Facebook. I'm trying. I heard a story of a young lady. She, um, she had a rough life and she, she hit rock bottom. And most people had labeled her by the things that she has done. I don't know if you've ever been labeled by what you've done. It's not fun. The second you label your, someone else by what they've done, you've forgotten where you came from. When Paul gives a list of the most heinous crimes done by man, he starts listing them. 
He says fornicators and adulterers and murderers and homosexuals. He gives this list of, he lumps all the sin together because there's no level of sin. Sin is sin. And he, and he gives this list of sin. And as you're reading it, like, ooh, that's gross. Ooh, ooh, I can't believe. And then he says this, and such were some of us. But we were washed and we were saved. And grace came to us. Don't you dare forget where you came from. So this girl, she's been labeled. And everybody knows her past and what she's done. And she knew they were going to talk about her when she got there. Because her name preceded herself. And this girl hadn't been at church in a long time, so she didn't really have church clothes. So she wore her Saturday night clothes on Sunday morning. And she walked into that church. And people knew she was a guest. And this, she's, the preacher's preaching and he sees her and he sees the way that she's dressed. And maybe her shirt was a little too tight. I don't know. But on the way out, he's greeting all the parishioners at the door and she's walking out. And he goes, young lady, come here, come here, young lady. And she walks over and he goes, I'm so grateful that you're here. But if you come back to this church, before you come back, I want you to pray and ask Jesus what you should wear. So she was embarrassed and she left. And she was in this broken spot. She knew she had to get back to the house of the Lord. So the next week she goes back. Similar type clothes. The preacher catches eyes with her. Again, while he's preaching on the way, on the way out, he says, maybe, 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 dear, you didn't hear me last week when I told you, but I'm going to tell you one more time. You can come back to this church, but before you come back, I want you to ask Jesus what you should wear before you come. She was embarrassed again. She had no clothes. She leaves. She comes back for the third time, and this time he doesn't even wait till his message. He's waiting for her in the foyer, and he sees her walk in. And he goes, sweetheart, maybe you didn't hear me the last two times. I told you before you came back to this church to ask Jesus what to wear. Did you ask Jesus? She said, I did ask Jesus. He says, well, what did Jesus say? She said, Jesus say, said, I don't know what you should wear to that church because I ain't never been there. <laughs> Jesus and religion don't mix. Religion is all about keeping people out. And what I noticed about religious people is religious people are very uncomfortable with real people with real pain. You can't wear that to that church. You can't say that in that church. You can't look like that in this church. You can't have that struggle in this church. Why? Because religious people want you to be ashamed of who you are because they haven't reconciled who they are yet. Listen to me, every person that comes into this house, I want you to know that you have equal value at the foot of the cross. You have equal value with Jesus. You come just as you are. What leads me to this final thought? Religion says you have to get cleaned up before you come. Jesus says come the way you are and I'll clean you up. Now wait, I know, I know our tendency because that's a double-edged sword right there. A lot of us are clapping for come as you are. The problem is you came seven years ago. You can't amen the first part, come as you are, if you don't let Jesus do the second part, clean you up. You come as you are, then Jesus changes your heart. And when your heart gets changed, so do you. 
It's called transformation. Be not conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What am I saying? I'm saying that you never have to change to come to Jesus, but coming to Jesus should always result in change. Some of the most powerful words in scripture, I love these words, because you see Jesus time and time and time again meeting Jesus. He's entering to a village. He's entering to a home. He's entering to this place, and it says the sinners flock to him, and Jesus never shuns the sinners away, and he meets the sinners right what they are. They, there was a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. He didn't say, hey, go take a shower. Go, 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 go put on something not so revealing. He meets her right where she is. That is the gospel. But then he says these words, the most powerful words in scripture. He says, your sins are forgiven. Now go and sin. We've created churches where everybody comes as they are. Listen to me. And I say this with love and compassion. If you've been here for a long period of time and nothing's changed and you're still shacking up and living like you did before you knew Jesus, it might not be Jesus you're following. It might be religion. Because if you really meet Jesus, everything changes. They were doing the same traditions for 1,400 years, the same prayers, the same meals. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene on a donkey and everything changes. When Jesus enters, everything changes. When he comes into your home, when he comes into your life, when he comes into your marriage, everything changes. Do you know how exhausting it is to play church? Do you know how exhausting it is to be religious? I got to go to this feast and that meal and this festival. I got to sacrifice that goat and this bull and that sheep. We got to build this altar with this fire. We got to make that meal. That meal ain't even good. They don't even have leaven in their bread. How nasty is that? Give me some gluten. Do you know how exhausting it is to play church? Do you know how exhausting it is to try to figure this thing out by yourself? And that's what religion is. Religion says you have to work your way to God. Jesus says, no, 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 no. I am the way to God. There is nothing good in Nick Carroll by himself. Here's what the Bible says about me. There's a verse about me. Y'all want to hear it? Here's what it says about me. Nick Carroll's righteousness is like filthy rags in the nostrils of God. Oh, but you're a good man. No, I'm not. You know what the Bible says about good men? There is no, not one. Why? Because every person in this room, we have one thing in common. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, we were born sinners. We're all sinners. Everybody in this room, we have all fallen short. There is nothing that we can do on our own to get to God. Why? Because I have a sinful nature. 
And you know what God says about sin? That he can't look at it. What? No, that's true. So I'm sin. I have a sinful nature. And God can't look at me? Well, I got to pray more prayers. I got to have more feasts. I got to take more steps. I got I to go to church more. No, 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 no. You still fall short. There's this great chasm. There's this great divide between us and God. On your own, you can't do it. It'd be like trying to jump across the Grand Canyon. I mean, some of us, we're a little getting older. We, I ain't got no ups anymore. I'd jump and I'd fall right here. Some of you are a little bit more athletic. You'd make it a little further. But no matter how far you jump, it's not far enough. So when Jesus enters, he's entering on a donkey as a king, as a Messiah, as a savior. He, he would go to that city, Jerusalem. He would weep over it. He would, he would go to the temple of God. He would overturn tables and he would go in there with a whip and drive people out. And it was just three days later that he would sit at this Passover meal. They would begin to understand the religious implications of this meal. They've been doing it for 1,400 years. And for the first time, they realize it's not about the lamb that was sacrificed 1,400 years ago. It's about the lamb sitting down with us who's about to sacrifice himself. He said, I am the bread. My body will be broken for you. My blood will be spilt for you. And in essence, what he was saying is, you thought you can get to God by making a sacrifice? He's saying, for the first time, I will become the sacrifice. And when God couldn't look at sin, we needed a bridge. And so you know what happened on the cross? Jesus became a bridge. And that's why he says, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. And when you get a hold of that concept, I'm telling you something. Your opinions will change. Truth will trump your opinions. It's not about a religion. It's not about a denomination. It's not about this building. It's not about our Savior's church. When you get to heaven, do you think Jesus is going to ask you, God's going to ask you, which church did you go to? Let me, let, me, let, me, let me check. He's, he's not going to do that. The Bible says many are going to come to him on that day. Say, Lord, Lord, did, did we not do this? Did we not do that? Did we not do this? And Jesus says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, for I knew you not. We're not that much different than the first century Jews. Will you relieve, leave your religion and your opinions for the truth named Jesus? That's all I'm asking. With every head bowed and every eye closed. We're all sinners. The Bible says there's only two prerequisites to really get to know Jesus. One is called repentance. The second is confession. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth,
that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. I can't help you with repentance. A prayer won't help you with repentance. I can't help you with confession. And if you're in this place and you're saying, you know what? I got to lay down some religion. I got to lay down some opinions. And I got to pick up truth. And his name's Jesus. And today I'm taking a stand. Today I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. I want to repent of my sins. I'm going to pray a simple prayer. There's nothing powerful about this prayer. It's just a condition of your heart when you pray it. And if you say, Pastor, that's me. Today I want to be saved. I want to be saved. That's you. Would you just raise your hand all over this building? Nobody's looking but me. Thank you. Hands up. One, two, three, four. In the balcony. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve on the floor. Thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. Thank you. This is how easy this is. We're not going to pray that prayer by ourselves. We're going to join our faith with yours, and we're all going to pray this out loud. Would you just say this with me? Dear Jesus, save me. Save me from myself. Save me from my sin. Save me from my religiosity. Save me from my opinions. Save me. Come into my heart. Change me from the inside out. Lord, I turn from my sin. And today, I make you the Lord and the Savior of my life. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Can we give all of the pray that prayer to the first time? A big, big hand clap.